Hello, and welcome to JK It's Magic, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties discuss mostly YA fantasy through the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jessie. And I'm Kelly. And this week, we're discussing The Marrow Thieves by Sherry Dimoline. In the story, we follow French and a group of indigenous people on the run from people who want to steal their bone marrow, as indigenous people are the only people who can dream in a world destroyed by the effects of climate change. Maybe it's appropriate to start with a little bit of a caveat that neither of us are indigenous, and so all of these discussions and critiques and comments are coming from you know our specific positionalities right our situated knowledges or ignorance more like of indigenous culture and Mm -hmm. history yeah and um obviously call us in if we say shit that we shouldn't have yeah and then also it seems relevant to honor and acknowledge all of the indigenous like land and water protectors who are fighting all the time and have been for a long time like in the Amazon with the Australia fires with all of with um, like pipeline construction in Turtle Island um, with the telescope on Mauna Kea like all of this is happening all the time right now colonialism is alive and real and I think we're talking about this book that imagines otherwise, um, but in that in this context that we're in right now. Okay, do you want to add anything else? Do you want to talk about the organizations added to the show notes? Um, yeah, sure. So we recently added uh, an addition to our show notes, um, including ways that you can help support Indigenous communities taking into consideration that we are on stolen land. Um, These suggested organizations came from Little Native Boy, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter. Um, They are the Mitakuye Foundation, Native Women's Wilderness, and the Navajo Water Project. So if you'd like to make a financial donation to any of those organizations, that would be amazing. And there will be plenty of other Indigenous advocates and organizers whose... um, various social media we'll link to in the show notes. So definitely give them a follow as well. Initial reactions. You want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, I thought the writing was amazing in this novel. The descriptions were great and I really got a good sense of the world. We were following the characters through um, considering that, you know, there's a lot of different things at play here That said, this wasn't my favorite book. The pacing was a little slow, which may have been intentional. And we'll talk about that a little more in Kill Your Darlings. Um, But there wasn't a lot happening in the fantasy aspect was a lot lighter than what I was expecting slash hoped for. Um, It's kind of almost like a travel story, which kind of makes sense as to why it might not be like my fave. Um, But overall, the writing was really good. I thought the characters were great. What about you? I thought this novel was slash is exquisite. I agree with you that the prose is incredible. It really brings the world alive and same with the characters. It I agree with you that the, the pacing is certainly different. It's slower. It seemed more methodical and measured 
and I do think that that's intentional and we'll talk about that later, but it reminded me of, I mean, it makes sense that it's won a bunch of awards, right? It's not like your typical going to stay at the New York times bestseller, like top of the list, because it's not about like swashbuckling action and adventure in the same way that like, I don't know, a Lee Bardugo book is for example, right? It's, it's intervening in a totally different way. So um, I think this would be a really great book for uh, like book clubs at a library or something. Like I think that you could really have this book be like part of a curriculum, you know, mm-hmm. and of indigenous futurisms or, you know, talking about indigenous activism and advocacy currently. I think that that this book really does lend it. It, it would be a, a really great text to have in the classroom or with, you know, younger readers who probably haven't learned a lot about indigenous history because our school systems actively erase it. Yeah, for sure. Time to talk about world building in Through the Wardrobe. So this book, unlike a lot of the books we've read for the podcast previously, takes place in our world, but it's set in the near future where climate change has wrecked the world as we know it, causing water sources to be poisoned from overuse and from corporations, um, earthquakes, and constant rain. So the world building is a little different here because we are literally walking through the wilderness a lot of the time and sometimes happen upon places where there were, um, like the former hotel, I think is like one of the bigger places that we happen upon in the story. So it's a little bit different than I think what we've normally read um it almost gives me like the quiet place vibes obviously they don't have to be quiet in this novel because of like monsters or like not monsters that can hear sound in the same way as that movie um but kind of similar to that where we're it's a lot of like walking through the wilderness and setting up camps and that sort of thing and on the run from mm-hmm. from like a predator basically who's right. trying to kill you yeah, exactly. I think this is the first post-apocalyptic or quasi-post-apocalyptic novel that we've read for the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that is interesting to point out that it's basically just our world fast-forwarded chronologically, and it doesn't really even seem that fantastical, and maybe that's why it doesn't seem like there's as much magic or fantasy going on, because it's really not that much of a stretch to say that you know, our environment collapses and massive pollution happens and then environmental destruction prompts mass waves of migration from low altitude areas, right? Sea level Mm -hmm. rise, all this um, environmental carnage, like where the land is spewing the uh, like oil and the natural gas out from it, right? So Mm -hmm. it um, there were some really beautiful passages in the novel where it's describing how the land is basically expelling colonialism and capitalism and the, it's like an earth the earth's reaction to it mm-hmm. it kind of reminded me of um this is gonna seem like a banal comparison but this is something similar happens in aquaman oh where <laughs> which is probably why i couldn't finish the film because i totally identified with the villain quote unquote mm. which was the <laughs> it was like some sea king or whatever but was using the power of the oceans to wash all of the trash and pollution back up onto land so the humans could see what they've done yeah that doesn't seem that bad no exactly so it reminded me of that oh that makes sense it's kind of the earth being like yeah we're done taking this 
for sure it just seems like the logical conclusion of what's happening right now yeah 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 um we see the importance of oral history in the story all of the history of the indigenous people is passed on from person to person um through stories um which causes a loss of history when the older people die and when some are separated from other indigenous people um we see this with mig and what's the what's the old lady's name minerva okay we see this with mig and minerva they're telling all the kids who are in the group the stories of their past but we also see how this gets muddled a little bit because there are different groups of indigenous people and so the the kids french included are only getting the stories of the of minerva and mig that they know so we kind of see people coming from different groups of indigenous people who might not be getting their histories which was a really sad thing to think about because everyone's you know getting separated from their families getting separated from their people right um but we see like a big importance put on oral history and they would like come together and tell their stories every night, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. I, I think you make a good point about it being like woven into the routine of the group. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, it was, everyone knew that sometimes you, you listen to story or there's listening. There's like almost like a curriculum happening, getting passed from the elders to the younger people in the community, which I think is really important. I mean, which the novel clearly signifies is incredibly important because their identity isn't, um, as indigenous people, isn't just like in their bodies, which like it is embodied that way with the bone marrow, right? We have it metaphorized and concretized indigenous um, identity manifest that way in the novel. But also we see the importance of like temporally and the sharing of these traditions and these stories. Yeah, agreed. And we also see this recuperation of like quite literal language, like indigenous mm-hmm. languages. There's a beautiful, let me find this quote. It's a French at one when they meet the two people who turn out, Travis and the other one, Lincoln, who turn out to be like working for the recruiters. Mm-hmm. Um towards the end of the novel, uh he talks about French talks about hearing these them speaking in Ashinaabe, I think, and talking about like if he weren't so worried about what you know the whole situation that he would have taken the words and like put them in his pocket, right? So right. they they seem the language itself is very sacred, and we see that happen at the end of the novel with Minerva's singing and how it right. destroys the residential school. So mm-hmm. the all of this is woven into the world building, which I think is really what really incredibly done. Yeah. Another thing I would say is that unlike any of the other novels we've read for the podcast or maybe any that I've read ever, but the natural world, like the actual biosphere, the plants, the animals, that seems to assume like a protagonic central role in the novel. We spend so much time as readers with passages about the landscape and the relationship to like the, the human's relationship to surviving in the wilderness, like surviving for as indigenous peoples have or had for thousands and thousands of years. Right. But we don't really see these stories. It's like, I think because of the privilege of specifically my situation, like when I go and spend time out in nature, it's like, Oh, fun camping. Not like, Mm -hmm out of necessity for survival and that just like shows how constructed 
our capitalist society, it like really does isolate us from nature. Um, right. But I guess, did you notice that in the novel about how like prominent of a role nature had? I guess I thought of it more of as um, uh, when I was younger, I would re- I'd not by choice for school read like survival novels almost like um hatchet oh, or even yes. a little bit like um what is that book by golding by like henry golding or whatever. lord of the flies yeah lord of the flies where like the the environment really becomes a protagonist in that like without that it becomes a protagonist in that you're trying to survive against it like the the environment's not actually a villain but because we don't spend time in those spaces it becomes villainous to us because we don't know what to do with it. Right. Um, so I kind of saw it like in that similar way. And, but obviously in this novel, that's a little bit changed radically. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. In that, um, you know, the earth is kind of trying to deal with the effects of all the things we've done to it. So it's almost like we were the villains and, and the earth is, you know, suffering because of our actions right. with climate change and those sorts of things so I kind of saw it as like survival novelist novelisty, you know yeah I like the comparison that you make to Lord of the Flies because I think it it provides a really good juxtaposition to see like how different these two perspectives are like the white mm-hmm. settler perspective of nature is something to be dominated and conquered mm-hmm. very cat- capitalist very colonialist which makes sense coming from like Anglo-American writers and then from an indigenous perspective with more of like a land-based epistemology that doesn't see humans as separate from the land then it doesn't become something to be conquered it becomes like something that actually sustains life which it is so just Mm -hmm. it it does reveal that juxtaposition i think does reveal how radically different the approach to the natural world is yeah Wands out. Let's discuss all things magic. I would say there wasn't a ton of magic happening in this story. The magical elements consist of the bone marrow of indigenous people being used um, as a cure to allow others to dream an ability that others have lost. Um, I was, I felt this, this novel was more along the lines of science fiction because Mm -hmm. of the whole, um, bone marrow thing going on within the story so it was kind of strange to me because this has been on my tbr for a long time to have seen it on so many fantasy lists it 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 felt a little strange to me um, because it does feel a little more science fiction although science fiction light i would say yeah i maybe we can just like say speculative fiction and then not have to (laughs) that avoids our problem of having to define science fiction or fantasy right um I don't I don't agree with you on this one. I would say that there is a lot of magic, but it's not manifesting in the way we're used to seeing in YA fantasy. Like the most of the like, I don't know, big five publisher books that we read. Mm -hmm. What I think is um, cool about this novel is that it. To your point about is it science fiction? Is it fantasy? I think that this author really fucks with those categories, which are kind of like prescribed, I guess, those genre categories. And because the magic is both part of the spirituality of the novel, the like indigenous relationship to 
ancestors and elders and um, like histories through the land and blood and traditions, like the language, right? So like all of this seems like the novel sees all of that as magical, at least to me. And um, like the ability of Minerva singing to disrupt something, that seemed like magic. And then they're also towards the end of the book, we're talking about how um, when Minerva died or when the deer was dying after they were have a hunt, they wanted to make sure that it died with its dreams intact. So it had enough magic to reach another life or another like plane or realm or whatever. So I think that the um, magic is there. It's just not, we don't see it deployed as often. And also I think it's interesting to note that like the magic is something especially with the dream ability like the most explicit manifestation of magic it's kind of like a we don't really see anyone's dreams like we don't have like dream sequences which i thought that would that maybe would have been interesting that would have been cool but um but it's also what they have to hide it's like mm-hmm. because of that magical ability they have to run and hide so there is this like weird dissonance between hey we're magical but we also can't show that we're magical because that is what makes people want to hunt us down and kill us yeah I think it's difficult because some of the magical like quote-unquote magical things seem spirituality based and so I'm hesitant to call any of those kinds of things magic Mm. um and especially when you think about the fact that um not not just the ability to dream gives them away, but like the way that they look gives them away unless they're someone like Mig's um, partner who was obviously they realized he was indigenous, but you know, he's half indigenous. So right. that like means something else, you know, you can kind of hide a little better. Um, so I think for me, it's like, I think it's hard because as the reader, when I pick up a book, I want to know what categories it fits into so that I know what, what I'm getting myself into. And that's Mm. not to say that authors can't um, bend genres in any way. I just think like for me as a book that was marked as fantasy, this is not what I was expecting. And I think that kind of um, changes your perspective on what you think you're going Mm -hmm. to be reading and like how you walk into the book and like the mindset you go into it with. And so for me, marking this book as fantasy felt like a little like I don't know, like, oh, well, this isn't what I was expecting. So I would have maybe gone into it with a different mindset. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. for from the reader's perspective, I think those kind of categorizations can be kind of important and like mind altering, you know? Yeah, that's a fair point. And on that note, did you see on Twitter? It was a long time ago about like the thread that was circulating about the pace of YA novels and how it's just like frenetic. And I don't think I did see that unrelenting. I'll dig through it and try and find it. It's probably like a needle in a haystack lost cause situation. Right. Um, but the, it said something to the effect of like, we're kind of desensitized or we're maybe like over exposed maybe to action and adventure in YA as like a genre. Mm-hmm. And this novel did make me think like, Oh yeah, maybe because if we're expecting like this, unrelenting pace of twist after twist after twist and um like to be pitched 
up and down and up and down on this like affective roller coaster ride that like Children of Blood and Bone is, for example. Right. And that is really great. And it's like a fun reading experience, but it is like you sit down and in two days you're done. And that didn't happen for me with this book at all. Right. Right. Yeah. I can see where that could be like, mm, that could be difficult. I think the hard part is that if you can't keep your reader interested, they might not continue with the book. And so if we want people, and especially because like, when you think about it, these books are written for teens and because we want them to read the books, like you kind of need that fast pace to keep them interested. So I think it can be a kind of a difficult balance. Um, and it kind of depends on what people like to read. Like we like to read fantasy and those books are very fast paced. But like when I read the fault on our stars, I'm like, this book is kind of, there's not a lot going on here. So I think there is kind of that difference between like realistic fiction and like science fiction or fantasy books where we expect the pace to be a little faster, which is why we pick those books. Right. So I think, I think there can be kind of um, an expectation of the genre as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can move all of that into kill your darlings upon editing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil in our segment, Get Me Kylo Ren. Speaking of which, we both have seen the last Star Wars. Yes. Rise of the Skywalker. That's right. And we got Raylo Spoilers. No Raylo spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Residential schools play a big role in this novel, so... Um, in this novel, it's a place where indigenous people are taken to have their bone marrow stolen from them, which causes them to die. Um, and we see Mig and Minerva kind of talking about the history of residential schools in small doses um, about what they have been in the past and how they were used to um, teach, quote unquote, you know, indigenous people the way of the white people, I guess, really. <laughs> mm hmm. Yeah, there is the obviously the long history of forced assimilation and adoptions, and we'll link to some resources in the show notes so that you can listeners can read more and learn more about this. Um, there's also some good podcasts that we can list, that I can um, put in the show notes of some histories of this. Um, what's essentially like cultural genocide. Mm-hmm. I thought that was um, really um, wonderful how the author decided to both concretize and metaphorize the like robbing of your identity so it's like the bone marrow it's like literally they have their indigeneity sucked out of them and what's special Mm -hmm. about them sucked out of them through their physical bone marrow and um it, it just seemed like a the parallel to residential schools literally people going there and having their indigeneity again like taught quote unquote out of them and learn right. out of them. Yeah. Um, I would say that for the, the recruiters are probably the big um, villains of the story. We don't really have, they're kind of like a faceless villain almost, which in a way can be more terrifying because you d- never know who's going to be um, out to get you, but they are the people who kidnap indigenous people and take them to the residential schools. Um 
and they play a big role in that that's who the group is always on the run from or trying to be on the lookout for. Absolutely. And I would say, would you agree that like the specter, even behind the recruiters, the novels implying this villain that is like white supremacist settler colonialism, basically like that is the main villain is the entire yeah. structure. Yeah, I would say so for sure. Um, and um, I was talking about this book with someone else and I thought it was, I thought it was a strange choice to make uh, that all the bone marrow had to be taken from the person, which, you know, eventually killed the indigenous person um, because uh, medical work with bone marrow is something that is possible. That's something that we do now for like bone marrow transplants, like for people with, I think, leukemia. Um, But they made the good point that it was kind of similar to what white people did the colonizers did saying like we want some of your land no we need all of your land like another way that you know we could have like not we um white people could have asked for like a smaller amount or even asked and instead decided to take everything that's a really really good point yeah that's which really i thought was point. like a really they didn't read the book but i just thought that was like a really good reading of um of how that works because you know it's not like i think science wise we can make more bone marrow from a small amount that's what they do mm-hmm. when people need a transplant um so i thought that was a good reading of like the ways in which colonizers will take everything that they possibly can absolutely the indigenous people then just became one more resource resource to be plundered mm-hmm. exactly yeah and at this i've been at this decoloniality conference for the past four days or so and a word that was getting thrown around a lot that i hadn't heard before was extractivist like to Mm -hmm. describe the economy and to describe settler relationship to land. And that is exactly the ethos here, right? We don't need all of it, but it's Mm -hmm. so wasteful. It's so extractivist. Yeah, exactly. And another time that that came up just in a different form was when they came upon the abandoned hotel or lodge. And Mm -hmm. French, I think, makes some sort of comment to the effect of who needs this much room? Right. Or who wants this much space? Like, yeah. really, it is you, you do kind of realize that like people are definitely living if well, what's the like statistic that if everyone lived like the American middle class, we would need four Earths. Oh, I have no idea or I've something. Yeah, I'll find mm-hmm. it and, and put it in the show notes. But it's that's absolutely the difference of you, you can see very starkly how this difference the relationship to resources and land is so different between the white settlers and then the indigenous people. Yeah. So in addition to the recruiters, we get some indigenous people who work with the recruiters who they essentially like trap and find other indigenous people to then send to the residential schools. And these people who are working with the recruiters do so in exchange for food and other supplies like clothing or whatever and I could see this obviously I can't speak to this nor am I really going to level much of a critique but I think that we could see this as a commentary on how oppressive structures co-opt certain individuals from minoritized groups and then use them to replicate oppression upon said minoritized groups right so we have this like an example of complicity in a really Mm -hmm. explicit form yeah there's a really good episode of um, Code Switch that talks about uh, black Republicans uh, and they do a good job talking about kind of like 
similarly how they will, you know, the Republican Party will take a conservative black person and kind of use them in this way. Um, Yeah. So I think that I thought that was a good way to show that not, you know, everyone from a group is not going to work for the benefit of everyone else in the group. Right. And an IRL example that I've heard or read critiques of from or heard critiques of from indigenous people is the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is Mm. like the main branch of the U.S. federal government that liaises with these different nations um, or tribal nations. So I can I'll link to some articles about that. Yeah. And I think as a as a minority, like we do see this a lot where we'll see someone from our specific group. And obviously I can only really speak to black people, but um, we'll see from someone from our group who were like, what the fuck are they doing? Like they're working against the interest of all of us. Um, like Omarosa, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like those kind of things where you're just like, wow. Like, but it makes it seem as if, uh, like we can be taken and used for whatever means the white people need. And this novel did a good job of showing how that might work in, um, in a, in a situation where like survival depends on it. Onward magical listeners. Just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, and gender. This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. We're going to start with race, although I think particularly with indigeneity, the line between like race and ethnicity is really like blurry. And I'm mm-hmm. not really sure how productive it is to like yo-yo between terms or pick one term over the other. So anyway. That's just a caveat. Um, I think the story doesn't set the reader up to view the work as strictly indigenous people versus all other races necessarily, as there are indigenous people who work with the recruiters to help kidnap other indigenous folks. Um, There isn't us versus them mentality, but it's more of a mentality of not trusting people outside of the family you've created. So we see that even when um, French and Mig and in the group meet up with other indigenous people they're very hesitant to trust them because they obviously know that some indigenous people are working with the recruiters so i think as opposed to um so much of a a minority group versus white people it is kind of an us we're on the run our family is what needs to be protected versus the people who would be out to get us Mm -hmm. absolutely and only at the end of the novel, when Isaac, when we see Isaac come, or when they come upon Isaac in the clearing, and with the mm-hmm. other, do we see like cross racial solidarity, basically? Because the two black women who used to work in the mm-hmm. school who rescued him out right. of there, and then we also have a white person who's the oh, do we? the only white person in the whole novel. I don't think he's even named, which is cool. Like I don't even remember them. It there it happens at the very very end, and he makes here. I'll find the quote. Isaac, so everyone from the community, French, etc. That whole family at this point is already like with the council. French has found his dad, and they're going to like send out a quote unquote welcome party to these people who are camped about a mile away, and French realizes it's Isaac, and sees the other people, and then is like what's going on with these other people that you're with? They're not Indians basically oh. is what French is saying. 
And um, so Clarence, one of these other elders from the council, has been talking to them and says they're allies. They're real allies. They put their lives on the line. It's not just talk. You heard them. So, like, they're actually – that shows that allyship cross-racially is means, like, oh, you actually have to put yourself in danger. Yeah. Which is, yes, totally. Agree. Oh, because there's that one guy who also works at the residential school, kind of. He's, like, their inside person. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So maybe there's two white people. Yeah. I don't know. I was just, like, no white people at all. <laughs> <laughs> we pretty much see the elimination of class society. Yeah. Which is really cool. Or yeah, we no, go ahead. Oh, we kind of see, um, I think the juxtaposition of like the, what class was like previously, like when they're at the lodge, like it's, you know, very opulent. And, um, but then we also see like in the beginning French and his brother are like in a tree house. So I'm going to guess like a middle class kind of thing. So we kind of see how that maybe started, but then obviously, obviously we move into um, everyone traveling in the wilderness and like sharing supplies and taking turns about who gets something new. Like when they find something like that sort of thing. sharing so, a baseball cap, right? Tree, yeah. <laughs> tree and Ziguan are, share their baseball cap and switch it back and yeah. forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we do kind of see like this is what it was like before versus like this is what it's like when we don't have time to worry about those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point that I guess we get like the specters or the ghosts, the haunting of what class society or like upper middle class life was like. And then we see this total reversion out of necessary out of necessity to a right. radically different way of living life with the land rather than like in spite of it right and maybe that's a uh an a, like an analogy to what we should be doing so like when we work with the land and we work with what nature has provided us with like you kind of see a breakdown of class systems let's talk about gender let's um, there is a sense that there is some separation of duty within French's group based on gender, um, but it seems that they all seem to take turns doing all the duties. I didn't really understand, like, why there was that separation. So, like, the boys would go hunting and the girls would stay with Minerva and do, like, camp things, like cooking and whatever else they did there. Um, but we actually never see French do any of those things. So I didn't really understand why we're getting that, like, separation by gender in that situation but it did seem like everyone took turns doing all the things which i thought was good mm -hmm. and also i it seemed that there was so maybe there there was some like separation of roles by gender but it there was a dignity to all of the labor that was being performed right yeah. like it was the tone was as reverential for describing wab taking care of minerva and washing her and dressing her and taking her to go to the bathroom and feeding her like that. You could tell that that work is really, really valued. That care work is incredibly valuable. And we almost had more attention paid to those sorts of tasks than we did to hunting or scouting. Or we didn't see as much of that. We knew it was happening because like the, you know, exposition would mention that 
chai boy was the best scout and was going out scouting or French was climbing a tree, you know? Yeah. So yeah. that's one thing I liked. And I think it really does upend gender is that there's, it's not about equal opportunity to do the same. Like it's not a, it didn't really seem like that gender was particularly important in the sense of like, oh, you can't go hunting because you're a girl, Rose. Right. You know, it wasn't like that. Or French, no, I don't feel like cooking or I don't feel like cleaning up because that's like women's work, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. There was, it it didn't seem like the labor, while it was both, while it was maybe gendered differently, but it wasn't like devalued because of that gendering, which is something I do think happens in our contemporary reality, right? Mm -hmm. That care work of, I don't know whether it's taking care of um, someone who's disabled or elderly or young people or whatever like that is seems less valued in our society. Whereas that was not the case at all in this novel. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'd say we also get some alternative models of masculinity. Um, Meg French, mainly Megan French. Um, Mm -hmm. who they don't conform to like toxic forms of masculinity promoted by capitalist white supremacist settler colonialist patriarchy and I really appreciated that it was just more um, all these characters who are gendered as male like seemed more like thoughtful not methodical necessarily but like not violent I guess in the same way and we did see that juxtaposed with Lincoln for example who's seen as abusing substances and then kidnaps Riri and they both die when he falls off the cliff or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Reading Wob's coming to story was pretty tough. She was the one who, she was a runner, right? Mm -hmm. And she talks about her mother being an alcoholic and always drunk. And then when there wasn't any, and then also, um, being a sex worker yeah right and then how her clients would sometimes assault wob and then wob talked about how her mom then went to uh intravenous drugs when there was no more alcohol left and so then wob had to start taking care of herself making her own money getting her own food not making money really because money doesn't exist in the society anymore yeah um but running errands and doing those things and then she got assaulted and like tortured by this guy and then she went on the run Um, yeah so i think that was the most um explicit story of gendered violence that we saw in the novel yeah i would agree and um i think speaks to the stories of um indigenous women who have been you know kidnapped and um um hurt uh sexually and physically you know we see this happening in our modern yeah yeah we see this happening in our modern times so i think it was a good um a good way of looking at like these things could happen in this futuristic society where where you know food is scarce and those sorts of things but they're also happening happening now so um there's a book that i got now I don't know what it was called and I haven't read it yet. Um, 
but it is about the you know the violence against indigenous women so i'm really looking forward to reading that um we'll put it in the show notes once i figure out what it's called <laughs> we'll put plenty there's gonna be plenty of resources in these show notes listeners yes if yes. anything this is the beginning of a conversation <laughs> and not the end right exactly I want to talk a little bit about coloniality. I mean, it's been woven throughout the entire episode and necessarily, but what do you want to say? Yeah, um, I think we see settler colonialism take center stage with this story. Um, as we see through the history of indigenous people, their land being stolen, treaties broken, and then eventually the theft of indigenous bodies. I think this is something that obviously has happened in real life, but I think we see this woven throughout the entire story um even sometimes in like little snippets of you know this was our water and then it was stolen from us this was the treaty we made and it was broken and then eventually that turning into like being put into residential schools both in the past and in the current time in the novel um so coloniality plays a big role in this story so i don't think it can be like neglected and left out as on its own um just because it's it's such a big part of the story. And I think it does permeate all of our conversations that we've been having the whole time about the world building and about mm-hmm. villainy and about race and about gender and yeah. Definitely. Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about asexuality, sexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. Sometimes we take liberties and do some shipping of our own. The affective ties that are most important in the novel seem to be chosen family. Exactly. Um, And you spoke already a little bit about that protection and the solidarity that comes from surviving and caring for one another through a sustained period of time. And we see like the fallout, what happens when um, members of the family die or are lost. Um, so those seem like the most, mm, I guess the affective ties that the novel is most invested in exploring seem to be those. Like, who are you surviving with? Like, who are you? Yeah. Ta- who are you taking care of? Who's taking care of you? And how are you like um, trying to keep living together? Yeah. And I think the novel is kind of saying, you know, the bonds that we create with a chosen family are so much I'm hesitant to say more important because I think people don't like that. But for me, in my mind, like they're so much more important than the ones with our born into family because we chose them. Um, and we even see at the end that French is willing to leave his dad who he hasn't seen in, you know, however many years it's been, I think 12 years or something um, with the rest of the group. And like that is more important to the survival of all of them than being with the family he was born into. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there's a lot of emphasis placed on chosen families in this novel, which is something I really appreciated. Like to add on to what you just said, the another thing that's interesting is that French's dad honors French's decision. And he's like, French, French tells him I have to go. And his dad is like, I know. And it's just like support, yeah. solidarity, understanding, compassion, you know, connection, even though we're not physically together. Like, I know you support me and that, you know, we're in this together. Yeah. Some good, some good, um, parenting figures in this story. Yes. Which which we don't often get in YA, honestly, 
um, every once in a while we do, but for the most part, you know, they're, they're either the villains or they're not around really. So, um, this was a good show of that. And maybe some of that is because, you know, a lot of YA is white. Uh, cause yes. I feel like in minority communities, there's a lot of more emphasis placed on, you know, parenting, that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good observation that probably that like the individualist ethos that we see through so much YA is, is, has like a racial tie. Well, cause when I think of like children of blood and bone, like Zelly's father is like, you know, he's a good parent figure in, um, a dream mm-hmm. so dark or whatever. I for- that's not the first one, but you know, um, yeah. But Alice's mom is like a good parental figure. Yes. Like those are both books about, or in Labyrinth Lost, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think it's, it's, mm, you know, white kids really want to push back against their parents and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it comes through in the stories that we're reading. (laughs) There was no heteronormative uh, agenda imposed on the novel, which is great because heteronormativity is a shitty colonialist imposition. No, thank you. Um, Same with like gender binary, right? There are plenty of indigenous like communities that have had different gender expressions for a long time um and so we saw miguans and isaac their relationship is really um portrayed with a lot of tenderness i would say it's honored really as this like beautiful partnership and because we see those like idyllic more idyllic narrations uh that mig tells when he's telling his coming to story right and talks about isaac you know with this um I don't know, just like a, a, like a longing, which makes sense because he thought that he lost him. And, th- and then the like part about him burying or pouring out all of the different um, like vials. Yeah. In the river of like people's essence or bone marrow or whatever. And how he kept Isaac close to his heart. Oh, my God. So, so good. But then it turns out Isaac is alive, which I feel like I should have seen coming. But I was like, oh, of course he's dead. Like, Yeah. <laughs> But he wasn't. <laughs> well, it's effective, right? The book made us all, including the characters, think that Isaac was dead. And then Isaac comes yeah. back. But it didn't yeah. seem like deus ex machina to me. It like felt like a beautiful moment of repair. Right. Same with um, finding out that French's dad was still alive. Yes. Like that one, I, I was like, maybe his dad's going to still be around or his brother, like one of the two. Mm-hmm. But it didn't seem like... It didn't seem like out of no, you know what I mean? Like, right. It's, it's, it worked for the story. Yeah. And I think it's part of it is because we're like rooting for something good to happen to these characters. Yeah. Like, holy shit. So much misery and death and violence is inflicted upon them. And so, yeah, I think it made those moments of like where French and Rose get together, you know, even more, even sweeter or when Isaac comes back or when French is reunited with his dad or when they have like a beautiful moment with Minerva in the family. Right. Um, I think it makes those moments even more important and special. Yeah, I would agree with that. We obviously see the importance of elders in this novel. I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. Agreed. A different orientation towards and relationship between authority figures and people who don't have as much authority. 
because it doesn't seem as like again extractive it's more it seems like the authority figures and the elders are more respectful of the people who they are you know in charge of so it seems like more of an even exchange rather than as punitive and hierarchical and top down as what we're used to I guess yeah and I think some of that comes from the fact that the the younger people realize that like their whole history is tied up in the elders so like they get that history from them but I think that maybe the elders also know like our future is in the younger people and I think that's sometimes difficult for you know for both older people and younger people to see in each other um but I mean I like this view of you know aging or whatever Mm -hmm. I think it was good and about how we can really we have a lot to give each other Mm-hmm. It was yeah. definitely a model of like generational repair, which I think is um, not surprising that it's from an indigenous author at all or from an indigenous perspective and community. And then also really necessary as much as I like, you know, get my rocks off with boomer memes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I do think that there are really substantive critiques, especially of like white boomers. Yeah. Um, But man our planet's dying and like we prep we need all hands on deck right right exactly now we're going to talk about writing style narration characterization plot structure and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called kill your darlings I felt like the reader is really led into a false sense of security in the first half of the novel in the same way that French and the group are because while they're attempting to make their way north, we don't see them encounter other people with the, excep- with the exception of the first encounter we see with French and his brother. And then all hell breaks loose and we see quite a few encounters, which lead to, you know, Minerva's death and kidnapping, Riri's death. Um, and I think as I was reading it, and it might be one of the reasons that I, I felt like it was really slow is because nothing's happening. Mm. Um, and because of that i was i stopped expecting things to happen i see but i think it's really well done and that i i think it was purposeful because i think it is meant to lead us to believe that they're going to get there it's not going to be a big deal like maybe some small things will happen but they'll get north to wherever it is they need to go there and everything will work out fine and then you know it kind of does but it really doesn't mm-hmm I agree with you that the pacing is intentional. Mm-hmm. And I know I talked about a, a little bit about this earlier, but it does seem like the specifically this content deserves a slower, more methodical engagement with it. And then also just shout out to the incredible prose in this novel. I want to read a few passages so listeners can get a taste. Are you down with that? I'm ready. Okay. Here's one from the beginning of the novel. Page. Where am I? Never mind, not from the beginning of the novel. From the end of the novel, when he and when French and Rose are in the forest together and they find real water for the first time with a fish in it. So this is a description of the scene. It was a thin brown brook pulling itself like a ribbon across the curve cut into the rock just ahead. 
It didn't rage or wave or crash. It bled from somewhere up the hill and carried itself with quiet grace across the tortured ground over the glassy rocks, feeding bundles of greens with tenacious roots, some pulled from the split earth and dangling under the cool surface like old ladies dipping vein bruised legs into a pool. It's from page 157 to 158. Ugh. It's just so good. It's so beautiful. Uh, you can tell that there was a lot of attention and time and care that went into describing um, like all these descriptions of the natural world that we have, which is a ton of them since everyone's outside the entire novel. Yes. Yeah. It was really well, well written novel. I, it, yeah. Yeah. That's all. It was a lot more <laughs> poetic, I think, than what we're used to getting in YA. Yeah. Yeah. Recommend if you like post-apocalyptic novels, for sure. There's a lot of that in here. Um, I would say if you like travel stories, there's a lot of tri travel going on in here. Climate change fiction, which um, I think I had a professor called Cli-fic or something like that. Cli-fi. Uh, Cli-fi, that's what it is. Um, like if you like those kind of stories or survivalist stories, I think if you are into survivalist stories, then you'll probably really like this Um books like the hatchet that sort of thing like i didn't know there were four of those books but apparently there's a bunch of them <laughs> that's a lot uh, yeah i didn't know that mosquito scene like really freaked me out as a kid so uh, i did not read any more of those than i had to but i think <laughs> if you like if you like survivalist stories then you'll like this one as well Before we end, it's time for Real Talk. Did reading this book make your perspective change in any way? Or did it make you interrogate a concept, system, or trend you hadn't before? Yes. <laughs> I have to find it. Hold on. Okay. Oh, okay. This is from the chapter, Word Arrives in Black. And it's on page 193. And during the scene... Clarence and Mig are talking to French. They're talking about um, how the earth has been destroyed. And Clarence says, the closer you get to the coasts, the more water's left that can be drunk. The middle grounds, nothing. It's like where the bomb landed and the poisons leached into the banks. Everything's gone in all directions till you get further out. So we see this like epicenter of destruction. And then a little farther on, Clarence says, all we need is the safety to return to our homelands. Then we can start the process of healing. But French, confused, asks, how can you return home when it's gone? Can't you just heal out here? Mid so this is like still a quote. Midge and General gave each other knowing looks, and Clarence was patient in his answer. This is Clarence speaking. I mean, we can start healing the land. We have the knowledge kept through the first round of these blasted schools from before that, when these visitors first made their way over here like, like angry children children throwing tantrums when we heal our land we are healed also we'll get there maybe not soon but eventually i just thought that's a really beautiful message of hope and repair and healing that we need at this moment in time i don't have anything <laughs> that's fine <laughs> Action item. We kind of did them at the top. So yeah, 
I would say maybe listeners, if you have the time and space, I would urge you to take a little bit more um, of a deliberate look through the show notes and click on the links, read the articles there. I'm going to um, also recommend the podcast, All My Relations. It is by two um, indigenous feminist advocates, artists. One of them's an academic and one is a photographer, I believe. Um, and the episodes are incredible, especially recommend the one about Can Our Ancestors Hear Us? That is about language recuperation. And then also one about um, the episodes about blood quantum that are really good and demystify that whole concept, which really does, no pun intended, bleed into a lot of um, like contemporary political discourse like uh, Elizabeth Warren being like, no, I'm Native American because of my 23 and me and things like that. So those seem like pretty important things to learn about. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. Follow some, follow indigenous advocates and organizers online, support indigenous resistance and resurgence around the world. And remember you're on stolen land. Thanks for listening to JK. It's magic. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of A Dream So Dark by L.L. McKinney. Do I keep going? Yeah, I'm out so. of practice. <laughs> As always, we'd love to be in conversation with you, magical listener. Let us know what you think of the episode, anything we missed, or just say hi by dropping a line in the comments or by reaching out to us on Twitter or Instagram at JKMagicPod. You can post or tweet about the show using the hashtag CriticallyReading. And you can contact us via email at JKMagicPod at gmail.com. You can subscribe to JK It's Magic on the podcast app of your choice. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review the show and spread the word to other rad readers out there. If you're interested in supporting JK It's Magic, you can make a one-time donation to us on Coffee. You can also support us monthly on Patreon in exchange for mini-sodes, bonus apps, swag, and much more. Kelly is recording on Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho land. Jesse is recording on Peoria, Kaskakia, Payankasha, Weya, Miami, Muscotin, Odawa, Sak, Meskwaki, Kickapoo, Potawatomi, Ojibwe, and Chickasaw land. Until next time, stay magical! Thanks for listening to JK. Oh, no. Do we have to? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? Do we have to? Yes, we have to. <laughs>